The burial was short but sweet, just by the oak tree a mile from his suite. He looked tranquil, almost out of reach, as the wind whirled the smell of fresh bleach. Wildflowers were lying in his numb palms. We held shovels but forgot the psalms. The carton coffin was a nice touch, not too tasteless yet not too much. The headlights of our cars trembled as his guilty fingers were disassembled. My tears burned, but you need not worry. It was still in good taste, rightfully gory. They told me not to look too closely into the grave they dug right next to Josie's. Yet I couldn't avert my eyes, imagining all her unanswered cries. Now it's his turn to face this fate, with a little more agony, a little more hate. As the first rays of moonlight innocently glister, we bury the animal who tortured my sister. WNSP presents the No Sleep Podcast Hour, starring David Cummings and the No Sleep Players. Nights of darkness. Fear creeping through your soul. Pounding heartbeats. Join us for tales of horror during the dark hours when you dare not close your eyes. And we're warning you. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Good evening. I'm David Cummings. Thank you for daring to be with us at the No Sleep Podcast Hour. Ah, revenge. They say it's a dish best served cold, but they never tell you how it should taste. Well, according to author Jackie Wright, it should be sweet. Like in her tale, which was this episode's cold open. Short, but sweet. Performed by Jessica McAvoy. Now that season 18 is well underway in the 1950s, we think back to those days when what was shown on television had to be very, well, let's say, family-friendly. You would never hear some of the salty language we feature in our tales. No, back then it was risque to utter the word damn, let alone all the F-bombs and other vulgarity regularly heard on our program. It's shameful, really. A source of constant embarrassment to me. I pride myself on language most pure, not in words dragged from the muck and pit. Language should be divinely inspired, not full of words like f and shit. Ah, curse my filthy mouth. But speaking of programs being family-friendly, as you know, our stories are decidedly not friendly to all family members. As such, it's a good time to remind you that we offer trigger warnings for the stories which warrant a bit of forewarning. We recognize that some of our listeners find it useful to be made aware of content which might be rather upsetting. 
This episode especially contains some rather intense content, so we encourage those of you who feel the need to brace yourself even more to consult the links in the show notes for the trigger warnings. And for all of Season 18's episodes, you can find the trigger warnings at triggers.thenosleeppodcast.com. It's our goal to make our horror entertainment accessible to all our listeners. And speaking of horror entertainment, we have some ready for you, our dear viewers. Now, adjust the antenna, tune in our signal, and settle in front of the TV to watch this week's Nightmares. In our first tale, we meet a man who recalls an event from his past. An ordinary man facing rather extraordinary circumstances. But as we learn from author Boyd Mason, the man knows what he did was extreme. But then again, sometimes people are pushed to extremes. I join Peter Lewis in performing this tale. So let's hear what happened in the man's own words. Let's listen to Jim's story. It was late October of 74, and the night felt odd. I hadn't been right for some time now. I decided to drive west from Minnesota out to the Dakotas. I hadn't seen the Badlands since I was a kid. I just needed to clear my head. Somehow, I found myself on a lonely gravel back road, cutting through a wasteland of barren cornfields, recently butchered leaving nothing to ponder upon the horizon. I was trapped in the old green station wagon with nothing but my own laments. Even the sun looked cold as it disappeared off to my left. I flipped on my beams and caught a glimpse of a crucified scarecrow guarding a frost-killed garden plot. He grinned at me, and I loathed him. It was getting dark, and I was lost in a sea of empty, desolate acres. I drove on, and, miracle of miracles, spotted a signpost up ahead. Sharp's Corner. Motel. Thirteen miles. The arrow pointed west. I obliged and made the turn. I was low on gas and getting nervous. The wind had picked up, and the decrepit wagon was slapped by rogue corn husks blowing across the fields. Then the rain began. It quickly turned to sheets of sleet, attacking the windshield. I came to the outskirts of Sharp's Corner. I could see the motel's vacancy sign flashing in the distance. The N and the Y were burned out. I could make out the outline of the place. It was a dump. I always stayed in places like this, joints in disrepair. Their downtrodden state made me feel better about myself. There was a pattern that followed me to these vulgar dives. The husband would be at the front desk. He would be balding with bad teeth, crooked and yellow. His shirt would be unbuttoned about three buttons down and the hair he did retain was greasy. His wife, who used to be something, would be clanking around the kitchenette behind the office. 
She would steal a moment from cleaning up the slop from supper to peek around the corner, just to see someone who wasn't her rancid husband. I continued on toward the motel. The sleet melodically pelted the windshield, putting me into an almost trance-like state. As I tried to refocus my eyes, an aged house caught my attention. I surmised it had at one time been a grand residence. Its carved gables and spindle-rich porch spoke of more glorious days. Its current state of dilapidation sparked a tinge of anger in me, and I felt my forehead burn as I fanned the anger and it spread through my consciousness. My lip formed in a familiar curl. Now incensed, I assaulted the dashboard, splitting open my knuckles. Just then, a flow of light shone from one of the upstairs windows. Through the sleet, I saw a man. He was holding something above his head. I flipped on my high beams, and the glint of a steel blade cut the night. It was a knife, a large carving knife. Curious, I stopped and continued to look into the window. A flash of blonde hair whirled past. I saw the silhouette of a young girl cowering. Then the light extinguished, and all went dark. I knew what I had to do. Without hesitating, I accelerated into the driveway. I barreled through the front door, taking it down, hinges and all. The splintered remains made mincemeat of my hands as I fell upon it. The screams of the little girl penetrated me, screams of extinction. The ramshackle interior of the house was a blur of cream and brown striped wallpaper, owls and chipped dishes, dark paneling and tarnished doorknobs. I bounded up the stairs four at a time. The light was back on, and the man with the knife had twisted her hair around his wrist and forearm, winching her midair as he held her off the ground. He gripped the knife an arm's length above her, ready to strike. His greasy, thinning hair was a burnt auburn. He had putrid, rotting teeth. I could smell them. He wore a vile orange shirt. It was open, three buttons down. He thrust the knife toward her neck. I leapt at him in in an act of, of, of what I would call divine intervention. I seized his wrist, liberating the knife from his grip. I then levied blows to his skull, rendering him a futile state. It was over, and the little blonde girl who had dropped to the floor rose up and embraced me. I'll never forget her maniacal sobs of thank you, thank you, thank you. You know that's not what happened, Jim. I'd had more than I could take for this day. I will not let you forget. I will not let you change this. You will not create sanctuary in your own mind. That was your little girl and her stepfather. You do not get to erase what you did to those innocent people. Do you understand me? As always, Jim's agitation was swift and horrific. He turned ablaze and shook violently. He dug his fingernails into his temples and mangled his thin, greasy hair. He tried to leap at me, 
but the guards held him down. They knew the routine. His lip curled into a snarl. Don't you curl your lip at me! I motioned for them to take him back to his cell. He looked back at me, gave me a toothless smile as they dragged him out the door. And button your shirt, I added as the door slammed shut. I was the psychiatrist at the penitentiary in Sioux Falls, and it was my job to remain calm. But Jim... Jim knew how to irk me. Huh? He knew how to test my limits. He told the same story every time. Dealing with trauma is something mental health professionals specialize in. They train for years to help people deal with their emotional pain. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jessica Hill, we meet a doctor returning to work after a traumatic event in his own life, only to find himself assigned to a rather unsettling patient. Performing this tale are Mike Delgadio, Mary Murphy, Aaron Lillis, Danielle McRae, and Matthew Bradford. So remember, even when dealing with psychological problems, you can't rule out the risk of dealing with a contagion. I've decided to start with one patient to prove to myself that I'm fit to be back. A year off isn't so long when you're trying to piece your whole life back together. I treated patients who had taken much longer than that to recover from their traumas. As I walked down corridors that were once so familiar, I let my free hand tap against the bottle of pills I have in my coat pocket. I take comfort in the muted chuckle of several tablets rattling in response. They're only for emergencies, but I was never one for letting my supply run low. I'd already taken my morning dose, but it wouldn't hurt to have another one, if the morning proved to be too much. I know my scripts well enough to take an extra dose every now and then. Really, I couldn't be sure how many I might need today. Better safe than sorry. My new patient isn't with the general population. I felt it better to minimize my exposure to the insane until my own sanity is appropriately confirmed. My patient has been in isolation pending my evaluation, and I'm looking forward to the challenge. My mind runs through the report I spent the night before memorizing. She was found wandering the streets, completely lost and unaware of her surroundings. She'd been wearing Prada shoes and an Armani blouse, yet no one came to claim her when the reports began to circulate. There were no medical records to lend clarity to her identity either, despite the wig she'd been wearing to cover up significant hair loss and what appeared to be sores from radiation treatment. There had been blood on her clothes and evidence of self-mutilation, cuts and scratches covering almost every inch of her body. I suspect she's suffering a breakdown due to severe trauma. But then, that is my area of expertise. I always think horses when I hear hoofbeats. Something has sent her over the edge. Now I need to figure out what. 
I'm pleased to see Maggie waiting for me outside of the patient's room. The short blonde nurse has been a rock for me in the last year. And although she's had her doubts about me returning to work, she's been nothing but supportive when I insist it's the next step in my own path to recovery. I do know what I'm talking about, I joked more than once. Nice of you to check on me. I smile as I take the chart Maggie holds out to me. But I'm fine, really. Maggie hugs herself as soon as her hands are free to do so, and her face is too serious. There are shallow creases where her fine brows come together over the bridge of her nose. I wanted to make sure you got the update on your patient. There's been some new developments. Oh? I begin to flip through the chart while Maggie continues. The blood work came back. She's not in treatment of any kind. In fact, the doctor who examined her last night suspects the hair loss is self-inflicted. The sores are from where she tore it out in clumps. Maggie swallows and I look at her again. It isn't like her to get so squeamish. There's more here. The doctor was going to take another blood sample to run against the blood on her clothes. It seems it's not hers, and the police want the results right away. But it didn't go very well. I put a hand on Maggie's shoulder. It's shaking. What happened? She snapped out of her semi-conscious state, and she... I feel a shiver pass through my friend into me. Peter, she bit his ear right off. I've seen my share of crazy in this place, but the way she laughed afterwards... The tears in Maggie's eyes unnerved me more than the violence she described. She reaches up a hand to tug at the gold cross she wears on a fine chain around her neck. If she experienced severe trauma, a violent response to a trigger is to be expected. I glance back at the chart in my hand. I see she was sedated. Is she restrained as well? Maggie nods. I just checked on her. She's near comatose. I frown. That isn't going to make my job any easier. Just don't go in. Put it off another day until the results come back. She could be more dangerous than we know. She is sedated and restrained. I just want to jot down a few notes about her appearance. Start to accustom her to my presence. I'll report to you as soon as I'm done if it'll put you at ease. Maggie takes a step back from me, still hugging her body with her cross in one hand. See that you do. Once inside the patient's room, the first thing I notice is the smell. Rotten eggs and rotten flesh slap me across the face, bringing tears to my eyes. The hand I bring to my mouth is as much to shield my nose as to hold back a surge of nausea. My skin starts to crawl. Oh, baby, they sent me a ripe one. My eyes travel to where Jane Doe is restrained on her bed. So much for sedation. Her eyes are fixed steadily on me. The whites a blend of red and purple from where tiny blood vessels have burst around dark irises. Her face holds the gray pallor of death. And where the soft restraints bind her wrists and ankles, her frail skin is sloughed away like wet tissue paper. A fly that has no business in the sterile environment of a hospital lands on one mottled cheek. It makes a way across her open eye, then flies off. She doesn't even blink. I'm glad to see you're awake. My name is Dr. Shaw. Can you tell me your name? The woman regards me with those unsettling eyes before throwing back her head to laugh. Her lips crack and bleed. Her head snaps back to face me so quickly, I swear I hear a bone crack. You won't be getting my name, Dr. Shaw. Names have power.
hours, you know. <laughs> Her fierce scowl turns back into a maniacal grin, and she giggles. I sit in the chair someone has left for me across from the bed and focus on opening my notebook while I wait for my nerves to settle. I'm surprised to see my hands shaking when I try to set pen to paper. Maybe one extra pill when I'm done here won't hurt. Are you afraid I might use your name against you? You don't have the balls. I decide to try a different approach. Do you know where you are? Silence, except for a low growl deep in the woman's throat. You are in St. Bartholomew's Psychiatric Hospital. You were found wandering the streets three days ago in a semi-conscious state. I'd like to help you get back to your loved ones, but first I have to make sure you're not a danger to yourself or others. The woman's face changes. It softens and her dark eyes fill with tears. Do I look like a danger to, to anyone, Dr. Shaw? Her damaged lips tremble. I find my head shaking no and I stop myself. I sit further back in my chair. You are covered in wounds that indicate you've been harming yourself. And just yesterday you had a concerning encounter with one of our doctors. Can you tell me about either of these things? The tears disappear and that trembling mouth spreads apart into a toothy grin. That was a good bit of fun. It's boring around here. Her voice deepens with each word, and it sounds almost masculine and more than a little raspy. It scrapes over my skin and holds me at attention. I find I can't look away when she starts to grind her hips against the mattress. We could have a bit of fun, too, I promise I won't fight back. I feel myself begin to sweat, and my mind, if not my hand, goes to the little yellow pills in my pocket. Maybe I'm not ready to be back. My heart is racing and I struggle to remember my training. Should I leave or redirect? <clears throat> Do you remember anything about the night they found you? I remember everything. Can you tell me about it? Yes. Will you? Yes. I wait, my pen poised over paper, swallowing the bile that rises to my throat as the scent of sulfur and death grows stronger. The woman stares at me without blinking. First you must tell me what's kept you away for so long, Dr. Shaw. I'm here to talk about you. It's a long time, Dr. Shaw. <laughs> Maybe you should pop one of those Zolovs and tell me about it. It would make you feel so much better. I don't know what you're referring to. The temperature in the room plummets, yet I can feel sweat soaking through the back of my shirt. <clears throat> if you're not prepared to speak to me, I'll come back. I stand to leave and the woman on the bed begins to spasm. When her face turns towards me again, I see true fear there. Please, please help me. She starts to choke. I watch as her throat swells and pulses. She opens her mouth to scream and her jaw cracks as the mandible dislocates from her skull in a grotesque display of terror. The spell holding me in place breaks and I dart for the door. I fumble with my keycard, but it slips from my trembling hands. I'm about to hammer a fist against the door when a new voice in the room stops me. 
Help me, Daddy. Don't leave me. I turn. The woman's face is turned towards me still, her eyes now staring blankly as a dark pool of shadow spills from her open mouth to the floor. Standing in the black puddle is a little girl. My little girl. Her fine red hair burned away from her blackened scalp and her face covered in angry blisters that burst when she speaks. Why did you leave us, Daddy? No. I shake my head heedless of the tears flowing against my hot cheeks. Yes, you left us and Mommy got so sad. Please. No. I slide to the floor, the door at my back. What's wrong, Daddy? The girl steps forward, the puddle sliding along at her feet. Are you afraid that it hurt when she threw the match on my bed? Are you worried that I was scared? My head keeps shaking, and I realize I now clutch the bottle of pills from my pocket. Don't worry, Daddy. The fire didn't hurt me. Mommy held the pillow over my face first so it couldn't hurt me. My nose broke, but that didn't hurt for very long either. She giggles <laughs> even as blood begins to pour from her nose. She throws herself into my arms. You shouldn't have left us, Daddy. It's all your fault. No. You might as well have held the pillow yourself. No. Did you smell us cooking when you came back for that file? Did your stomach crawl just a little? I opened my mouth to scream and find myself choking instead. The black shadow rises up like a snake then launches itself towards me. I have no time to respond. It fills my mouth and nose and ears and lungs. Tears keep pouring down my cheeks as my vision darkens and my daughter's voice continues to fill my ears. Did you smell us cooking, Daddy? Did you? The words echo and bounce around in the darkness, consuming me. When the light returns, I'm out in the hall again. I see Maggie looking up at me. She's listening to what I'm saying, but I'm not saying anything. Except I am. I can hear my voice. I can feel the movement of my lips and the touch of her skin as I reach out to hold her hand. Except it isn't me. I'm not in control. The gesture reassures her that I'm all right. But I'm not all right. I'm not all right. I scream, but the sound goes nowhere simply joins the echo of my daughter's voice with its haunting accusations. The darkness descends again. I pummel my fists against the nothing. I claw and scratch at my eyes because I can't seem to open them. Why can't I open them? The next time the light comes, I'm looking at myself in the mirror. It's me, but it's not me. The face in the mirror is smiling at me with a toothy grin I've seen somewhere before. The eyes are bloodshot and purple, and they stare back at me through the mirror, stare back beyond the reflection to where I cower somewhere within those dark, dilated pupils. The mouth moves to speak, and I hear my voice speaking to me in the light, as well as the deep rasp of another filling the darkness. I like your friend. I think she and I are going to have some fun. No! So. Much. Fun. 
This time I don't slip into the darkness. The shadow won't let me. I fight to take back control when Maggie smiles uncertainly at the person she thinks is me. Because I know what's coming the moment before it does. She sees the scalpel, and I cry out for mercy as I watch her smile disappear. I long for the darkness then, but the demon in control won't give it to me until the walls are painted red and her screams finally become gurgling gasps. When the darkness comes then, I'm grateful. I don't even mind the taunting echoes that are my only company. Did you smell us cooking, Daddy? It's all your fault. I don't know how long I've lost. Flashes of light come and go, showing me tableaus of horror each time. Blood and corpses everywhere we go. I can feel my physical body wasting away. When I finally wake up, I'm in a strange place, sitting in a hard chair. I can feel the tug of restraints on my wrists, and a small measure of my old self takes stock of the situation. There's a man sitting across from me in a police uniform. The cop has a folder open in front of him, the word evidence leering at me in red. For a terrible moment, I dare to believe I've been given back control of myself. But when the officer speaks, I know I'm lost. I'm Detective Morgan. We've got a lot to go over tonight, but I'd like to start with your name, if you don't mind. I can hear the rasping voice superimposed over my own when the reply is given. No, I don't think so. Names have power, you know. We all have urges, don't we? Urges like having that extra slice of cake. Like spending a bit too much on that new outfit. Like killing that insufferable person who... Uh, oh, wait. Thankfully, not everyone is like Elroy. You see, Elroy has felt the urge to kill for as long as he can remember. But as we learn in this tale from author P.D. Radcliffe, Elroy decides that the best way to deal with these urges is to put them to good use, working in the prison on death row. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Jesse Cornett, Graham Rowett, Mick Wingert, Matthew Bradford, Peter Lewis, and Kyle Akers. So before you decide if murder is a biblical mandate, let's consider how to divide the moving creature. The first time I went hunting with my pa, I wondered if killing a big animal with a heart the size of a man's head would stop the urge. I was eight. I'd felt it as far back as I could remember. I didn't know why. As I got older, the urge became clearer, and therefore something I felt I needed to do in life. 
the way some people needed to have kids or visit Paris. I always felt it, deep beneath my sternum like a gaping mouth. I'm not a bad person by any fair reckoning. It's just one of those things. On that first hunting trip, I pictured what it would be like to pull the trigger and see a living thing drop dead. Something bigger than the ground squirrels I killed with the 22 in the pastures back home. We'd already lost one horse last summer after it tripped in a burrow and broke its leg. Pa simply said shit as the animal tried to stand, screaming as horses do. He walked to the house to get his rifle, came back with those lanky fuck-all strides of his and shot it in the head. Blood arced, and I imagined putting my hand in it, feeling the heat. As we stalked through the mountains, I mimicked my father, stepped like he stepped, waited like he waited. He wouldn't let me chew yet, so I pretended by pushing my tongue between my teeth and lip. We listened to an elk bugle a few hundred yards off and made our way to a point on an adjacent ridge. Once the herd wandered into range, Pa tapped me on the shoulder and pointed to a cow standing broadside. My heart pounded and my hands shook, but I shouldered the rifle and took aim. Bang. The bullet hit dirt and every elk bolted as the report echoed over their heads and arms. Shit. Paul pulled off his filthy hat and rubbed his face. I knew what that meant. I braced myself. But the first blow still surprised me. It always did. After a few minutes, he stopped, breathing hard. He didn't used to get so winded. We made our way back to camp, and I killed an elk the next day. Pa smiled somewhere under his beard and even patted me on the shoulder. Bruised from the day before, but I didn't wince. No, sir. I was proud. At least for a moment. I'd finally killed an elk. I waited to see if that was enough to subdue the urge. If anything, gutting that creature in the cold mountain air made the mouth gape a little wider. A couple of years out of high school, Pa passed away. Neighbors found him in the back of his pickup at the edge of the farm. Empty jaws of homebrew around him like a halo. Liver failure. I skipped the funeral and spent the day in bed thinking about that screaming horse with blood draining from its skull. When I thought about the sticky grass around the gutted elk, it's hard at my feet. I tried holding my breath so long I'd pass out. I only ever saw stars. By then I had found my way into corrections and eventually got a job at the state prison. What I didn't tell anyone during the interviews was that I was less interested in justice than murder. I didn't like to call it murder, though. I wasn't a murderer. 
or I would have killed somebody already. I just wanted to turn off the lights. As a god, I thought it would be simple enough to off an offender, as I'd like to say to myself. But it was easier imagined than done. I figured prison would be different that way from the outside world, but it was just as hard. Too many cameras. Too much surveillance. Sure, there was plenty of opportunity to beat on prisoners, and I'd even cracked a man's skull once, and made another lose an eye. But taking that final step in the way I wanted would bring too much trouble. Part of the problem was, I didn't much care who I killed. Though I did figure the person should deserve it. That was more practical matter than principle. If I killed someone who had it coming, it'd be just less of an issue for everyone else. I transferred to death row, and part of me hoped this would be it. The death row block could hold 60 or so prisoners, but there were only five when I got there. I knew that going in, but... Seeing all that empty space was still a disappointment. A month later, three of them, who'd all been convicted in the same murder case, got proven innocent on account of DNA. This was also a disappointment, but I held out some hope. There were always more on the way, and the last two were real pieces of work. Both in the 60s, there was little chance DNA or God himself had any miracles in store for them. If worse comes to worse, I figured I could always volunteer to pull the switch. The younger one, Daryl McComb, shot a cop 30 years ago when he was up to his eyeballs in PCP. The other, Stephen Mark Hadley, murdered two women in 1986. Stabbed a mother and her daughter to death after raping the girl. His defense tried to plead insanity, but in the end, he said he knew what he'd done. He couldn't explain it. He planned a robbery, and then just kept crossing lines he didn't mean to. The more I crossed, he confessed to trial, the more the lines kind of went fuzzy. It was hard to stop. I know that ain't no excuse, but there it is. The jury took less than an hour to find him guilty. The judge sentenced him to death. A couple years later, Stephen found Jesus. I've read the Bible three whole times. He'd tell me and the other gods as often as he could. I had to confess I'd only read it in parts. I told the world and God what I did. Honest as I could recall. And I'm real sorry. Real. Sorry. I didn't usually say much in response, but one day I did ask Stephen if he was afraid of hell. Maybe I wanted to rile him. Maybe I was just bored. Well, that's a good question, son, but hard. It's a hard question. I am afraid of hell because what I did means I deserve it. But I believe Jesus knows I'm sorry. 
And the Bible says if you're sorry, sorry like you've never been sorry for anything, then Jesus will save you. I can't say for sure, because God will be my judge, but I think I might have a shot at staying out of hell. Maybe after a few lashes at least. <laughs> I thought it was a strange thing to laugh about, but I'm myself smiling anyway. A few days later, I asked Stephen if he was afraid of dying. Well, now, son, that's an easy one. I've had a long time to think about it, and plenty of time to be afraid. So much time, in fact, I ran out of fear. I spent it all, or most of it anyways. And what I did was wrong. So, I think maybe I deserve to die. I guess I'm afraid of the pain. I guess I'm afraid of the dark that comes after the pain. But if Jesus has heard my prayers, and I believe he has, then I think he'll catch me when I'm falling toward that eternal pit. He'll catch me and bring me into his bosom with Abraham and all us sinners who've seen the light. He stood slowly, pushing through the arthritic sludge, swelling his hips and knees. (laughs) He was taller than me, but stooped by old age. He leaned towards the bars and stared straight into my eyes. I'm sure I'll see you there too, someday. So long as you believe the Bible just like I do. I smiled. That was nice. Real nice to think of being in heaven. I wondered if there was still a Bible somewhere in the box of my father's things I kept in the garage. Daryl tried to distract us while we were talking like this, which happened more and more as time went on. Daryl was all piss and sin, needling me about befriending a child murderer. He said Stephen's Jesus talk was just an act, nothing more than a load of horse shit. Stephen would just smile and tell me, Those who believe on Jesus are always persecuted. Sometimes he'd say prosecuted, but I didn't know which was right. Over time, I grew closer to Stephen, and even wondered sometimes if he'd actually done what they'd say he did. Stephen was kind, always ready with an uplifting word for the guards, even the mean ones, and a bit of forgiveness for Daryl despite his profane talk. Maybe Stephen never did it. Or if he did, maybe he really had changed. This made me think of my old fantasy, if you can call it that. If anyone deserved to be killed, it was a murderer. But I couldn't imagine killing Stephen. 
Maybe I was changing too. One day I came in early. Stephen uttered a bright, Good morning, son, as usual. But Daryl, instead of making an obscene gesture, was suddenly calling me over, acting like something was the matter. Hey, Chief. Come here for a second. What is it, inmate? My ass trying my best to be hard, but not feeling up to it. I got important information for you. I looked at him with feigned confusion. You're in here all day. How did you get important information? You got a tiny spy in your pocket I don't know about? <laughs> that made Stephen laugh. I always tried things like that I thought would make Stephen laugh. It's kind of like a bit of intelligence, as they say. He grinned his rotten grin and gestured for me to come closer. Quit wasting my time and just say it. Daryl gestured again and I played along, leaning in. He spoke in a loud, slow whisper. Stephen ain't your daddy. I froze. My heart and lungs seized up, like Daryl had punched me in the gut. What the hell do you mean? I never said he was- He ain't your daddy, and you ain't his son. I hear the two of you talk. I bet your daddy was a real son of a bitch, wasn't he? Inmate, you shut your mouth. I felt a new kind of anger. Or it was old. But I hadn't felt it in ages. I bet he beat you and everything. Never kissed your bruises and told you you was a good boy. Stephen seems like fucking old Saint Nick next to him, I'm sure. But let me ask you this. Your daddy hit you. But did he ever rape a little girl and stab her near 20 times with a knife already covered in her mama's blood? Your daddy hit you, but he wasn't no child rapist and he wasn't no child murderer. You think Jesus forgives that kind of abomination? I know I killed too, but it wasn't really me. Not really. Don't be a damn fool, son. He ain't no good and he ain't your daddy. No, I know that. You shut up. I... I couldn't finish the thought. My tongue tied up in rage and confusion. If I could have found the word and the will to say it, I'd have said I was embarrassed. But I wouldn't have known why. I marched back down the corridor as Daryl shouted, He ain't, you damn fool! One last time. Everyone stayed quiet the rest of the day, just sitting with what Daryl had said since there was no walking around it. Worse, after my shift, it followed me home. It climbed on top of me and gripped at my throat. It got angrier as the night wore on, 
and no amount of beer and cheap whiskey seemed to help. I couldn't put my finger on it. This revulsion, if that's the right word. I called in sick the next day, and for two days after that. When I returned to work, I decided the only way to get this thing to stop was to prove Daryl wrong. Steven tried to ask me if I was alright, and I told him to stay quiet. Steven reached to the boss to touch my shoulder, and I grabbed his hand and twisted it so hard one of his fingers tore out of its socket with a loud pop. Do not touch me, inmate. Do you understand? Yes, yes. I'm sorry, Elroy. It is Officer Standish, you fucking child murderer. You understand? Yeah, yes. Officer Standish, sir. I'm, I'm sorry. I let go and Stephen fell back, cradling his hand. One of the other guards on duty buzzed Daryl's cell open and I stepped in, forced him against the wall. I guess you learned that lesson quick, didn't you? I ignored him and tossed the cell. You know you ain't gonna find nothing, unless you dropped it yourself. And what's this? I held up a small brown lump tied in clear plastic. Like I said, you must have dropped... Before he could finish, I took Daryl by the shoulders and threw him to the floor. Me and another god laid into him with our clubs and boots. Ignoring his cries. Ignoring Stevens begging for help. I threw my club aside and with my bare fist dropped one last blow straight into the side of Daryl's bloody head. The cries stopped with an eerie finality, like he was telling a secret you needed to hear, and suddenly your ears stopped working. I felt a thrill. A surging current cracking through my veins, and I imagined raising my boot and crushing Daryl's skull into a thousand pieces. I imagined the gore and the gray matter. That'll teach him. The other guard pulled my sleeve. Let's call it in. Daryl spent two weeks in the hospital. During that time, Steven didn't speak unless spoken to. I did my job and minded my business. I yelled at Steven a time or two, but mostly kept my distance and only spoke to the other guards. When Daryl came back, I talked down to him for a while, even pushed him around some. But eventually, we all settled into a quiet, mindless routine. Even the words Daryl had spoken seemed to settle down into one of the empty cells, and everyone pretended not to notice.
The next year, word came that Stevens' lawyers failed to get his sentence commuted. Three weeks later, his execution was scheduled. He was given the option, lethal injection or the chair. He chose the chair. Too many unknowns with the drugs, he said. When the warden asked him why, at least the chair's honest about its method. I had transferred out of death row by that time, but I kept tabs on Stephen's case. I was well-liked among the officers and the warden, and at one point I volunteered for Stephen's extraction team. Later, when no one else would, I volunteered to be executioner. I planned to visit Stephen during his last meal and tell him I'd be the one sending him towards the dark pit. I'd tell him he wasn't my daddy, and he'd rot in hell with Daryl, who'd join him soon enough. That's what I planned. But three days before, Stephen sent a message and asked me to come see him. I wondered if Stephen found out I was on the extraction team. I wondered if he was going to beg me for mercy. I didn't want that. But since I'd planned on going in anyway, I thought maybe I could still say what I wanted to say. Stephen didn't look so good when I came in. No longer the jolly grandpa, just a beat-down old pervert afraid to die. I tried not to feel sorry for him, but part of me couldn't help it. Stephen cut himself off. He watched me with wide eyes as I walked to the cell bars. When I didn't react, he continued. I'm sorry, Officer Standish. It's, it's good to see you. He started to say something else, but then broke down crying. I didn't move. I was still trying to find the courage to tell Stephen what I wanted to tell. But this made it hard. I felt embarrassed. For myself and for him. Listen. And Stephen kept sobbing. Listen, inmate. Stephen looked up at me with red, watery eyes, tears and mucus dripping down his face. I'm sorry. What? I'm I'm sorry for what Daryl said and for my part in it. Whatever that was. You didn't... You're not... Yeah, I know. I know. I'm not your daddy. He sniffed and rubbed his eyes. (laughs) I never really meant to act like I was. I just... I just... I just felt you understood me better than other guards. 
It felt good to have someone listen. Maybe someone I could pass my wisdom to before I died. I don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. I found a chair and sat down. My anger, such as it was, seemed to be wandering off as guilt settled down in its place. But there's another thing, officer. Elroy. Elroy's fine. Thank you, Elroy. There's one more thing. I'm facing my death, and I, I just couldn't take this with me. A priest came yesterday, and I, I couldn't tell him. I thought, maybe I could tell you. Steven, what the hell are you talking about? I lied to you, Elroy. I never regretted it. I never did. Not really. Even though I said so. Regretted what? Steven clenched his jaw and struggled to say the word. Finally, he muttered. Killing. He continued. Killing those two women. That mama and her girl. Elroy, I told you and God and everyone I was sorry. But the truth is... I'm not. He said these words very slowly. And I realized I couldn't tell if it was because he was ashamed... or proud... or both. Stephen paused and waited for me to say something. I just stared without blinking. And they weren't the first, Elroy. They weren't the first. God knows it. And now you do too. I killed seven others before them. I tried to be sorry, and I did. I prayed to Jesus, and I read the Bible and told everyone I was sorry. But the truth is, the only time I felt the light the glory in my bones was when I killed those people. Stephen reached for his Bible and opened to the first page carefully, <laughs> as though it might fall to pieces if he did it too quickly. 
I hesitated, but then leaned forward. I'd seen Stephen's Bible before, full of highlights and underlining, but I'd never read it closely. Look. Tears filled his eyes again as his hand shook. Can you see it? In the beginning, void and darkness was good. Divide the moving creature, male and female. I have meat. I have meat. And behold, it was very good. Now reached through the bars and took the Bible. I flipped through the pages frantically. The same highlighting throughout. Scattered words, phrases, never a full sentence or verse. Every story I realized, every murder Stephen had committed was there, encoded in highlights and red ink. Instinctively, some part of me was repulsed. It felt forbidden. This is wrong. I know it. I know it. This is wrong. I said again, not realizing that I hadn't yet looked away from the book. Not realizing that every highlighted word fell directly into that gaping mouth beneath my sternum, like a chunk of meat. That word. Meat. Immediately I felt the old shock, the current racing through my veins. Meat. I said again, louder. The word was highlighted over and over. I looked up at Stephen, whose head was bowed. I want to be sorry. The voice didn't sound like him. I tried to be sorry. I did. There's a reason they didn't figure out about them seven other people. I know I'm going to hell. I deserve it. I tried to be sorry, but I'm not. I loved everyone. Every killing. Every slice into those soft bodies. He lifted his head slowly until we were eye to eye. Every bite. My legs kicked out involuntarily. 
My chair slid back and slammed against the wall. The crash echoed and a guard stepped into the bare hallway, asking if everything was alright. I didn't reply. I didn't hear or see the guard. I didn't breathe. That mouth inside thrashed and gnawed. The sudden hunger was unlike anything I'd felt. I thought it might devour my heart and eat its way out of my chest right then and there. Without a word, I left the cell block. The other guards still calling after me. I drove home running red lights and stop signs. It was only after I slammed the door behind me that I realized I still had Stephen's Bible in my hand. I sat at the kitchen table, the book in front of me. I read and didn't stop reading. Driven by fascination and terror. We sat by the flesh. We did eat with hunger. Blood touched blood. I will destroy thy mother, thy children. Eat their heart, their iniquity. I only looked up when my phone wouldn't stop ringing. I stared at the clock. Morning? How was it morning? I was late for work. The next two days I wandered from task to task in a haze, only half aware of what I was doing. The shock of Stephen's confession. The answer to the question I didn't know I'd been asking my whole life. It wouldn't be enough. It wouldn't be enough to kill. Then it struck me. Tomorrow morning, I'd pull the switch. This was supposed to be it. The moment I'd finally satisfy that urge. Close that mouth. And now, more than ever, I realized Stephen deserved it. But I didn't want to. I didn't care that Stephen deserved it. I hated myself for it. But I needed more. More answers. More wisdom. More details. There was nothing I could do. The morning of the execution came, and the extraction team worked with solemn ceremony. They brought Stephen into the room, treating him like a visiting dignitary. I stood to the side, a black hood over my head. I saw Stephen look at me and wondered if he knew. I fought the urge to pull it off and say something, but there'd be an audience. The governor, lawyers, reporters, families. I had to stay hooded. I watched them strap Stephen into the chair. I watched the warden open the curtains and make a brief statement. I heard Stephen's last words. 
I tried to be sorry. And then it was time. The guards stepped into the hallway. I stood in front of the controls. The warden looked to me and nodded. My heart raced as I stared at Stephen, who was hyperventilating and choking on sobs. I reached mechanically for the switch and pulled it. 2,200 volts flooded into Stephen's body. He convulsed and went rigid at unnatural angles against the chair. Meat. I stared at him, tried to focus as the warden spoke. This is justice. We are soldiers in the war against crime. This is how justice gets done. This isn't right. I tried to breathe. In the beginning. Breathe. The moving creature. Just breathe. Shit. Ten seconds in, and a red Rorschach blot formed on the front of Stephen's uniform. Behind the glass, witnesses gasped. Hands clapped to mouths. Others gripped armchairs as if it would stop the hemorrhaging. Before I knew what I was doing, I threw open the door to the chamber and lunged towards Stephen. Shit. Chaos and screams. A guard stood frozen at the open door, while another reached to turn off the switch. A split second before the current stopped, my fingers made contact with Stephen's shoulder. And I felt an explosion inside every cell of my body before the universe went black. I woke up. Was I dead? How long had it been? Everything hurt like the cells were stitching themselves back together. I struggled to place myself. Someone was sitting near my feet. Well, son, you did it. You finally did it. That voice. Unnatural. Broken. I thought I was dreaming. My head pounded and I struggled to understand where I was and what happened. I took a deep breath and tried to shake the blur out of my eyes. You said that. 
Where the hell am I? I could feel the mattress and blankets pulled to the right. Someone was definitely there. I didn't know it was you. I didn't think you'd have it in you to do that to me. I know I deserve to die. But I didn't know it was you. Stephen? How, how are you alive? I saw you. Chip. Did you survive? No, son. No, I did not. My eyes began to clear, and the figure sitting before me came into focus. It was Stephen. Or it looked like him, at least. Same hair. Same stubble, same bags under his eyes. But parts of his face were blistered. Red and black, the skin peeling away. He wore the same prison jumpsuit. The red blot was still there. And it seemed to be growing. A primal terror gripped me from the inside... I clenched my eyes and mouth, squeezed my temples between my palms. This can't be real. I found the call button and pushed it. I yelled for the nurse, who rushed in and seemed surprised I was awake. He checked my vitals and turned to get the doctor. No. Nurse. Please. Help. Do, do you? I looked over at the old man who stared back at me with the emptiest eyes I'd ever seen. Yes? Do you see him? I'm sorry? Him? That there? Pointed. The nurse looked across the room and then back at me. Sir, just stay calm. I'll be right back. The nurse returned with the doctor a few minutes later. The doctor asked me questions, told me I'd been electrocuted, and was lucky I didn't go into cardiac arrest. She said a few other things, but I had a hard time listening. Still staring at Stephen, I asked if electrocution made you see things. The doctor said hallucination wasn't typical, but she'd consult a neurologist colleague to be sure. When they left, Stephen spoke again. Why, Elroy? What do you mean? I was still not ready to accept this was real. Why'd you do it? 
You knew it wouldn't be enough. I struggled to comprehend and called the nurse again, begging for more pain meds. I noticed for the first time that my fingers and hand were bandaged and throbbing. I started to remember details. Flashes of the execution room. Feeling myself pulled toward the chair. That mouth inside driving me forward. I shuddered and tried to drive the images from my head. I tried to ignore Stephen, who was walking the room silently. And I tried to ignore the red blot on his chest, pulsing like a heartbeat. That night, I couldn't sleep. Stephen kept pacing and muttering to himself in a constant stream of confusion and subdued agony. He quieted down when the sun came up, but was back on the bed, staring at the floor. It wasn't my fault. You deserved it, didn't you? I just did my job. You know that ain't what we're talking about. I felt the mouth inside thrash to life so violently it scared me. Stephen turned to me, expressionless, and disappeared. I was discharged after a couple of days. I convinced myself it had all been in my head, even though the neurologist said hallucinations weren't likely. But when I made it home and opened the door, I heard a voice. You took it. He was sitting at the table flipping through the pages of his Bible. I meant for you to take it. Shit. My heart raced. I don't know if you're real or not, but I can't help you. That's not why I'm here. Then help me. I can't do this. I'm not you. I'm not some fucking psycho who eats people. What the hell do I do? Stephen ignored me and continued turning pages, stopping to trace a passage with a blistered finger. No matter. Isn't real. I slapped the side of my head despite a monstrous headache. Out. 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 Get out. A faint trail of smoke rose from Stephen's mouth as he whispered a verse from the book of Jeremiah. Your word. 
Gods were found, and I ate them. I shouted something incoherent, my voice cracking. I felt the panic taking over. Was it really Steven? Was I going crazy? I couldn't do it. This wasn't me. This wasn't my need. Was it? All this time. I rifled through drawers and cabinets. Empty bottles everywhere. Not a whiskey or beer in sight. I ran to the garage. Hesitated. And then lugged a dusty box from underneath a pile of paint cans and oil rags. I pulled a dirty sealed mason jar from inside and fought it open. I gulped the clear liquid. Fumes enveloping my head and a toxic burn coating my throat. I let up and coughed brutally before taking another gulp. I went back inside and found a pack of cigarettes. I lit one and took a long drag. Stephen was still there. You shall not eat anything with the blood. I took another deep drag and held it in as long as I could. I clenched my eyes and clapped my hands over my ears. Nor make any baldness between your eyes for the dead. I finally let the breath out and took another gulp from the jar. My head was spinning. I nearly dropped the jar, splashing the pages of the book. I set it on the table and grabbed the Bible. You, in your goddamn book, can both burn in hell. I struck the lighter. A red flame burst across the pages. For an instant, I thought I saw the scarlet blot on Stephen's chest mimic the fire's movements. I ran to the garage and threw the burning book onto the concrete watching it long enough to see it reduced to ash. I went back, hoping to see Stephen gone, but he was still at the table. And he was still reading it. The Bible sat in front of him, just as before. I stumbled forward. That's not possible. Because thy soul longeth to eat flesh. I took a desperate mouthful from the jar and spit it onto the book, tearing it away and lighting it again. I dropped it on the table and watched it burn. The fire caught other drops of liquid and started to spread. 
red stream shot across the table, climbed the jar, and went mad at the mouth. As the book burned, Stephen's face started to change. The blisters swelled and popped, sizzling as they spilled onto his blackening cheeks. Smoke poured from his nose and mouth, and every hair on his face and head curled into ash. The stench was unholy. I watched in horror as Stephen reached for the Bible and continued to read. The flames engulfing his hands and page after page. Riotous eaters, no flesh. The blood on Stephen's chest morphed, the blood gushing with frenetic energy. For the first time, one of the shapes looked familiar. Briefly, it formed a set of horns or antlers before twisting into a chaotic splotch. I stood, mesmerized as it continued to change. Dying horse. A devil hanging from a tree. A fountain of blood. At last I saw a mouth. A mouth I'd never seen before but knew instantly. I looked back up at Stephen, whose face was so badly burnt he was no longer recognizable. Eat. With that occult word, I was suddenly lost. I couldn't think. I was the mouth on Stephen's burning chest. I was hunger and sin. I was the dark glory of unspeakable appetite. Eat. Stephen held out his arm and pulled up the charred remnant of his sleeve. He exposed the only part not yet entirely burned. A fleshy knot of forearm just below the elbow. I could only obey. I reached out, my own arms touching the flames, but there was no pain. Only hunger. I drove my face in and dug my teeth deeply. Feeling the hot blood gushing in my mouth. Bit hard and tore, twisting my neck and ripping the flesh down to nerve and bone. I leaned back slowly and chewed. It was ecstasy. It was certainty, a transcendence beyond imagination. With every bite, I felt deeper and deeper into a pool of endless pleasure. And then... And then... A light flickered 
the pool emptied. Dark smoke drifted into the vision, and I was wrenched back into myself. This isn't right. I opened my eyes. Stephen's face had burned so completely that the charred skin started to slough off. Underneath was raw and red, but it was no longer Stephen's face. Someone else stared at me through the smoke. What was I seeing? My brain flailed at the unreality of it. With the primitive terror of a wounded animal, I watched my dead father's zombie movements. I mirrored him involuntarily. Paul cocked his head. I cocked my head. Paul spit, and I spit. The flesh dropping from my mouth. Paul looked down at the red blot on his chest. And I looked down and saw the same blot. Paul held up his arm. And I held up my own. He disappeared and I couldn't follow. It was then I understood. I saw where the blood was coming from. It wasn't Stevens or my father's arm not eaten. A gaping wound on my own forearm led zealously. I'd bitten through an artery. I stumbled toward the kitchen to get something, anything to stop the bleeding. The buttons too deep, and the smoke too thick. The flames had grown. Notice the walls, the ceiling. I collapsed, still gripping my arm, but feeling myself slip away. The last thing I saw was Paul striding calmly through the smoke, holding the mason jar filled with red flames. The blood on his chest had grown and soaked into his arms and legs. He looked down at the prison suit and then at me. Shit. He shook his head, taking one last drink to pure fire.
Losing your beloved spouse to an insidious disease is tragic no matter when it happens. But when you lose someone far too young, it takes years to recover. Like the man in this tale, shared with us by authors One Faraday and Ronan Ellis. You see, Rich is finally getting his life back together after losing his wife. Except he learns that perhaps he didn't actually lose her at all. Performing this tale are Dan Zapula, Nicole Doolin, Mick Wingert, and Nicole Goodnight. So can you blame him for his happy yet mystifying discovery? It must be so thrilling to discover you're the ex-widower. I used to be a widower. My wife June died of cancer at a young age, years before she would have begun regular screening. So young that the doctors misdiagnosed her at first. We were newly married. She was 22 and I was 26. We were so madly in love and our lives felt blissful and untouchable. I mean, in retrospect, that's what you remember. You learn to remember the good things while the rough parts fade. That's part of the healing process, I suppose. Throwing a candy coating on your life with that person so that they remain forever perfect in your memory. Her oncologist said she probably had the beginnings of the tumor by our wedding day. She started chemotherapy just before our first anniversary but the cancer was so aggressive that it was already too late. She hung on, somehow, until our second anniversary, but then she was gone. Barely 24, and dead from cancer. It felt like a cosmic injustice. I was numb at first, walking through my daily life mechanically. On our third anniversary... It finally hit me, really hit me, and I broke down. I was a mess for months, despite everyone in my life trying so hard to help me through it. I teetered on the brink of alcoholism, I nearly lost my job, I alienated most of my friends. I didn't handle it well at all, and I take full responsibility for that. It took years for me to crawl my way out of that pit. By our sixth wedding anniversary, I was starting to live a normal life again. But it was hard. Friends tried to encourage me to start dating again, insisting that she'd want me to. But June's hypothetical opinion of my life wasn't what held me back. I knew I wouldn't be harming her memory, but I just wasn't ready yet in my heart. I was 35 when our ninth anniversary approached, but honestly, I was looking more like 55. The years had been hard on me. I'd lost most of my hair, and what was left was rapidly going gray. Worry lines etched my face. But I'd survived the worst thing that life could throw at me, and I finally felt at peace with it. I remember tying my tie that morning, fussing over getting it just right. 
I was anticipating a promotion soon at work. I'd aced the third interview and the executives were hinting that I was a shoe-in. Life felt back on track. I opened and checked my briefcase, patted my pockets to double-check for my wallet, phone, and keys, and started heading downstairs to get to work. I didn't see her until I got to the bottom of the stairs. She was sitting there on a stool at the island in the kitchen, sipping a cup of coffee and reading the newspaper. The resemblance was uncanny. She looked just like June if she'd survived to age nine more years instead of passing away. I almost didn't see who she was for a second, because sometimes it was hard to see around the memory of her wasting away in bed or poorly painted by the undertaker and lying in her coffin. These were my last memories, and sometimes they threatened to overwhelm those times when she was young and vital. But the woman at the table was alive, with rosy cheeks and full, lustrous hair. She looked up at me, and we just stared into each other's eyes. I heard my briefcase make a thump and a clatter as it hit the floor below my slack hand. I tried to speak, but could barely manage more than a whisper. June! She rolled her eyes. What is it this time, Rich? The vitriol of her words and her glare passed right by me at first. I just stared, my heart filling with confusion and love and wonder. What? Pick up your damn briefcase and stop staring at me like a brain-dead puppy dog. You'll be late for work. She turned back to her newspaper. I ran up to her and put my arms around her and started kissing her cheek and crying with confused joy. I had no idea how she was back in my life. But she was real. I could feel her warmth under my lips. I'd dreamed like this a hundred times before, but this was no dream. The reunion was cut off when she slapped me across the face. What the hell has gotten into you, Rich? June, how... How are you here? How is this possible? What the hell are you talking about? I live here. I have every right to be here, jackass. But you're dead. You you were dead. That's a really messed up thing to say, Rich. I don't know what you're playing at, but that's not funny. But you were. How did, How did this happen? You died nine years ago. That's some twisted fantasy life you're living in. The only thing that died nine years ago is your limp and pathetic libido. Despite her anger and her insults, there were tears of joy running down my cheeks. She screamed at me repeatedly to leave for work and let her be alone. But I never wanted to be separated from her ever again, not even for a blink of my eyes. And then... She just left. She threw the newspaper at me, down the last of her coffee, slammed her mug on the counter, and stormed out the door. She got into an unfamiliar black Mercedes SUV and peeled out of the driveway, still screaming out the driver's window at me. I sat down in the kitchen in shock. 
There was so much going on so quickly I could barely understand what just happened. That reunion hadn't gone at all like I would have expected. I started looking around the house. There were changes. They seemed minor at first. A different set of photos on the mantel, different furniture in the living room. The guest bathroom on the main floor was painted differently. Some of the dishes in the kitchen were different. The fridge was stocked with different food. The liquor cabinet had more variety. Upstairs in my bedroom, our bedroom, the changes were more obvious. There was a vanity against one wall with makeup on it. There was another dresser full of women's clothes. The ensuite bathroom was cluttered with things like a curling iron, facial treatments, moisturizers. I had been in the bedroom moments before I saw her. Whatever this change was, it must have happened on my way down the stairs. In fascination, I picked up her hairbrush off the bathroom counter. There was a tangle of black hairs embedded in it, and among them, a single gray one. I was holding the brush in my hand when suddenly I felt it move with a sickening, almost liquid slump. In front of my eyes, it was coming apart like it was made of ashes. For a moment, I thought I saw movement like the brush had hatched dozens of tiny centipedes and dropped it with a start. Before it hit the floor, the remains of the brush were gone. I frantically washed my hands in the sink. After that, I was paranoid of touching any of her belongings, worried that whatever had altered my reality had left it fragile, and she might disappear too, like ashes through my fingers. I realized my phone was ringing. I pulled it out of my pocket and saw that it was my boss. I sighed, flipped it open, holding it up to my ear. Hey, Chester. Damn it, Rich! Your... Your 915 is waiting here, feeling like a fool. Where the hell are you? Yes, I know. Sorry, I... Third time this month, Rich. I'm not taking excuses anymore. I'm handing him over to Andrea. You can forget about your commission. Look, I'm really sorry. Something has... I got an earful. So intense, I had to pull the phone away. He was definitely having a bad day. Chester, I'm really sorry, but a family emergency has come up. Sure it has. Look, Rich, you better get your ass through the door on time tomorrow. I'm done with excuses. Then he hung up. I decided I would smooth things out with him tomorrow. In the meantime, my life was in some kind of beautiful chaos and my bewildered joy was untouchable. I woke up this morning a widower, and now my wife had returned to me. I ended up spending the day piecing together the last nine years according to the evidence around me. History had been altered somehow, and my life had apparently gone very differently. June never got cancer. We remained married. We never had kids while some of our friends did. 
She got her certification in accounting, then in real estate, both of which came as a surprise to me. She'd talked about wanting to be a school teacher before we got married. She seemed passionate about it at the time. But she was doing well, apparently. Hanging in the hallway were awards and accolades from her employer. She didn't get home until 8 that evening, by which time I'd calmed and collected myself. I was sitting in the armchair in the living room when she got home. She gave me a look of contempt when she stumbled in the door and tried to hang her coat on the hook in the hallway, but missed. I tried to hide the glee I was feeling inside and act normally. I was now living in a world where June had lived, and I had to play along. Hi, honey. I'm glad you're home. First time for everything. She was slurring her words a little. She looked like she'd been drinking. My heart sank, wondering if she'd driven herself home like this. Did you have a good day? Sure I did. What about you? Did you get over your stupid kissy love attack from the morning? Yeah, I did. Good. That gave me the jeebies all day. I know you don't like me sometimes, Rich, but I don't like you talking about me being dead like that. (laughs) If that's the fantasy that keeps you going, it's pretty sick. I'm sorry. I must have had some crazy dream. I don't know what came over me. Whatever. She kicked off her heels and went into the kitchen to pour herself a glass of wine, which she took upstairs with her to the bedroom. I sat in the armchair and cried quietly to myself. It was a mix of relief, confusion, hurt, and nine years of grief unraveling all at once. There was a new grief, too, a strange sort of grief for the life I had been living. As painful and lonely as it was, a large part of my life was now wiped away. I'd never heard of a miracle like this. I'd learned about the dead being resurrected back in Sunday school when I was a kid, but that was different. June was no healed leper or risen Christ nor a zombie or vampire. She was not undead or miraculous, just a woman. A woman who seemed unhappy. I decided to be the best husband I could be to her, to make up for the failures I'd obviously been dragging around in this alternate history. I had such foolish high hopes. I tried so hard, though. Over the next few weeks, I made her dinner, took her to nice restaurants, tried to rub her shoulders and kiss her and hold her. She spurned me repeatedly, despite my patient repeated attempts to get back into her heart. Instead, she just drank. Often I would find her SUV in the driveway in the morning, parked haphazardly, sometimes with a tire on the lawn or in the flower bed. She stayed out late often, and I slowly admitted to myself that she was probably having an affair. It turned out I had been, too, in this alternate history. 
One Thursday afternoon, I was working in my office when my cell phone rang from some caller labeled John, golf partner, in my phone. Hello? Richard? Where the hell have you been hiding? I haven't heard from you in weeks. I didn't recognize her voice. I was about to ask who she was, but realized that this would be a bad idea. Lately, I'd been getting used to lying my way through this alternate life, pretending I knew what was going on. Yeah, I'm... I'm sorry. It's been a pretty crazy few weeks. I bet. I think you owe me some explanations. First, you told me that you're going to take care of things, that you and I will be able to be together. Then you tell me not to contact you, to wait until I hear from you now. I'll bet you're about to tell me that you've changed your mind and reconciled with that demon. Well, I... Yes. I'm in love with her. Yeah? Well, I think you're in love with being a weak little cuckold. Do us both a favor, dick. Don't ever call me again. It's done between you and I. We're through. Then she hung up, and I was left reeling. I never saw myself as the kind of man who would cheat on his wife. I took a vow and meant it. Even years after my wife had died, I still felt like I couldn't break it. I felt sick to my stomach, but the worst part was that I felt some sympathy for my other self. I can't really explain what I did next. It was mostly out of curiosity, I guess. I checked the contact in my phone and found an address. On my way home that evening, I made a detour. Whoever this woman was, she lived in a fairly average neighborhood north of downtown. I drove slowly down her street, looking for her house number. When I found it, there was nothing familiar about the house at all. It was a generic beige box like all the others, with some healthy yellow rose bushes out front. The black Mercedes SUV parked in the driveway was familiar, though. I drove on, back onto my regular path back home, where I sat down and poured myself a drink. Our anniversary came and went. I remembered. June didn't. She stood me up for the date I'd planned. She laughed when I suggested we celebrate by making love, something we still hadn't done since she returned. She went to bed drunk, as usual. Two months after finding myself in this world, I was desperate for any sign of hope. I was starting to lose a lot of sleep. My life seemed hopeless now, and I found myself occasionally thinking that it would be better if she had never come back at all. In the world I'd left behind, I'd been miserable for years, but at least there had been a light at the end of the tunnel. This reality seemed destined for failure, for divorce, and a different grieving process full of bitterness and angst. It was in this sour mood that I left work after another day of barely getting by and being subjected to the usual office bullying, and discovered that my car had a flat tire. I swore as I threw my briefcase into the back seat and popped the trunk to get at the spare. I pulled up the carpet and false bottom and revealed the spare. 
I pulled it out and made a disturbing discovery underneath. Tucked away under the spare was a collection of strange items. Several rolls of gray duct tape, some candles, a coil of yellow rope, a box of salt, a bag of dried leaves, and a gun. I don't know much about firearms, but it was some kind of handgun. I quickly closed the trunk before anyone could see. As I changed the tire, I mulled over my discovery. There was only really one explanation I could think of. I realized that this reality I had stumbled into, despite having my long-lost love in it, was even worse than the one I had left. And coming here, intersecting those two worlds, was the worst possible thing that could happen. It wasn't meant to be. The dinner I made was cold when she came home. I was in the process of scooping the leftovers into containers when she stumbled through the door. She kicked off her heels and threw her jacket onto the hook. She had a sour look on her face and her eyes stayed fixed on mine as she walked slowly and clumsily toward me. As usual, I tried to pretend that everything was fine. Hi, honey. How was your day? She didn't answer. Just glared at me. Sealed the deal on that nice spot out of town for the Andersons? Do you still fantasize that I'm dead? I set down the pot of pasta as calmly as I could. Of course not, June. I never did. You don't wonder what your life would be like if I were? If I were rotting in some box somewhere? And you were free to stick it in any ditzy young slut you wanted? June! Tell me you don't think about it, Rich. Tell me you don't think about how free you'd be if your wicked harpy of a wife was out of the picture. Tell me with a straight face. I lost my temper finally at that moment. <laughs> I threw the pasta pot across the kitchen and smashed the frame photo of us on our second anniversary taken back when we still smiled while standing next to each other. Is that what you think? You think I'd be happy if you were dead? You have no goddamn idea what my life would be like. I would be a pathetic, weak, whiny excuse of a man mourning you year after year while everyone around me gently tries to shake me out of it. I'd still be having your mother over for dinner every third Sunday. I'd still be putting flowers on your grave, still visiting all your favorite places alone. I'd be turning down beautiful women because I'd still be faithful to your memory. Or because they wore their hair like you did. Every breast I held, I'd think about... about lumps, about doctors, about metastases. I trailed off. She was staring at me, not sure what to make of me. I realized that in our entire marriage, I'd never raised my voice like that. Finally, she just shrugged, grabbed a bottle of red wine out of the cupboard, and stumbled upstairs to bed.
Hours later, when she'd polished off the bottle and I'd gotten several fingers deep into the scotch, I was lying in bed next to her, fighting heartburn. Like usual lately, I'd been tossing and turning and unable to get to sleep. Then, at almost three in the morning, June suddenly sat bolt upright in bed next to me. Honey? She didn't answer, just turned and stepped out of bed. I thought maybe she was going to the ensuite, but then she left the room wordlessly in the dark. I heard her familiar steps descending the stairs. Part of me didn't know or care where she was going, but I was a little worried that maybe she was sleepwalking. She'd never done it before to my memory, but who knows what else had changed in this cursed alternate world. So a few moments later, I sighed, put on my housecoat, and followed her out. I found her in the dark living room, a shadowy form sitting on the couch. Honey? What are you doing? She didn't reply. I turned the light on and squinted painfully at the sudden brightness of it. When my eyes adapted, I saw her sitting there, legs crossed at a severe angle, arms spread wide open over the back of the couch. She had an unnatural grin and painfully wide open eyes. June, honey, are you okay? In response, she opened her mouth so wide it was like her head was hinging open, and the most terrifying sound in the world came out of her. It was like every predatory animal, every warning siren, every fire alarm and crying child were all there at once, coming out at full volume. The pain of it brought my hands to my ears and my knees to the rug in an instant, like I was a slave at the altar of some terrible demon. I don't understand how the windows didn't shatter, but I felt like I did, deep inside. I've been like a walking corpse since I heard that sound, like my soul was scooped out and smashed to pieces. I lay there on the living room rug, bawling and pleading for the sound to stop, and my ears were ringing so hard that I didn't even notice the moment when it actually did. All I knew was that I was alone in the room now. The sound was over, and I thought I was surely rendered deaf. I saw blood on my palms from where I'd covered my ears, like stigmata. In the din of my screaming, dying ears, I stumbled around the house trying to find her. Eventually, I did. She was in bed, sleeping soundly, as if the whole incident had never happened. As soon as I saw her, the ringing in my ears suddenly ceased, and the blood all vanished from my hands. I suddenly felt physically fine. She stirred and looked up at me with half-awake disdain. <sighs> conscience keeping you up? Then she went back to sleep. So I went downstairs and fell asleep on the couch that night. Every night since, she's gotten up just before three in the morning, 
And now I just let her do whatever she wants to do. I don't want to be faced with that noise again. One thing's certain, though. Now I know for sure that I am still a widower. Whatever that thing is that's been sleeping next to me at night, it isn't my wife. In our final tale, we're thrust into the nightmarish life of a daughter, child to a horribly violent father. After the death of her mother, the father's behavior degrades into acts of unspeakable depravity. But in this tale, shared with us by author Hatteras Mange, the girl knows she must act to end his carnage because time is quickly running out. Performing this tale are Kristen DiMercurio, Sarah Thomas, and Erica Sanderson. So, as they say, desperate times call for desperate measures, and you have to be especially desperate for you to wear the crown of gore. Her daddy's best ram was dead. Carrie killed it herself, cut its throat with the comfortable stroke of a practiced butcher. A batch of roosters were dead too. Samanis with glossy feathers, beaks, and flesh as dark as India ink. The parts of the body she didn't need were dressed and packed in the freezer. The rest of the meat was with her in the old barn. Roosters' heads were piled in front of her, making a tower for the rams to balance on. Tongues lulled and eyes gone milky. They were starting to stink. She knelt inside a circle, demarcated by a line of paint on a sheet of plywood from Daddy's shop. In it, with her, were the slaughtered rooster's feet and sheep intestines. The feet were strung on twine around her neck, and the intestines, looped tight, made a crown for her head. Lines of blood and slimy gut fluid leaked into her hair, matting her bangs. Some rolled down her forehead and cheeks. The stickiness made her itch, but she ignored it. It wasn't important. She had to keep going. There wouldn't be a second chance. In front of her, haloed by candles stuck in place with wax, was a book so old it didn't have a name. It was bound in some kind of leather and written in words she couldn't read. She'd have to trust the transliterations penciled between lines. It came from a stash her mama used to keep under the porch in a moldy old trunk. In life, the book had been one of mama's most prized possessions. In death, it was her daughter's inheritance, same as it had been hers. Daddy didn't know about it. Mama kept it a secret, and before passing had made Carrie promise to do the same. It wasn't for men to know, Mama said, and never had been. If they knew, they'd want to burn it. Then you won't be safe. At the time, she hadn't wondered what she needed to be kept safe from. She'd been too young. Nothing really scared her then. 
If she thought hard enough back to that day, she could remember thinking Mama was talking about coyotes. She knew better now. The worst things in life didn't come from the woods. Hands shaking from nerves, Carrie flipped through a few pages, eyeing the drawings and the margins around the text. Like the transliterations, they weren't original. The pictographs had been inked in later by one of the last people who could read the book. Carrie wondered who that had been. Her grandmother? Great-grandmother? Someone older? Whoever they were, they'd ensured illiteracy wouldn't kill the family practice. Mala, Ray, Bandy, Lo. Carrie read the first line uncertainly. She'd never heard anyone say those words and worried she wouldn't get the emphasis right. If she did, she didn't know what would happen. Mama hadn't said. Mama hadn't even told her what would happen if she got every part of one of the rituals right. Better you don't know, she'd said between coughs. That way, it can't tempt you. Don't even think about it until you're out of options. For the most part, Carrie did what she was told. In the years since Mama's funeral, she'd only taken the book out a handful of times. She kept the trunk key under a loose board beneath her bed, only breaking it out once or twice a year to make sure the book was safe. She never untied the thick leather thong that kept it shut or read from the pages. Until now, Carrie had resisted the siren song. She trailed off, eyes skating to the margins. There she saw a crudely rendered hand cut across the palm. It dripped blood onto an insignia she'd already painted onto her plyboard. Hers was sloppy, drawn in the dark, but recognizable. After wiping the knife she'd used to cut the ram's throat on her shirt, she pressed the tip to her palm and slashed. The sting made her wince and the wound welled with blood immediately. She had to make a fist to keep it from spilling. Duna! Duna! That was a name. She knew that much. A scrap of language she could read scrawled at the top of the page said so. Gramen kifa duna. She smeared her injury over the insignia. When she pulled away, it burned before going tingly. Gramen kifa duna. The ritual and its crammed-in transliteration ended. But there was one more pictograph on the page. It showed a knife plunging into the middle of a word along the top of the circle. Carrie's version of that wasn't pretty either, but it'd do. Pulse fluttering, she flipped her knife around and jabbed it into place. It sank deep into an O, the wood giving more easily than it should have. It didn't feel like wood at all. It felt like flesh. Outside, something screamed. Carrie jumped and snatched her hand away from the blade, leaving it buried in the board point down. The wind picked up, suddenly gusting, obscuring the sound before burying it, leaving her to wonder, had she heard a scream at all? With it gone, she wasn't sure. Even if it had been a scream, it could have come from all sorts of wild animals. It was bad timing, she reasoned. Anxiety was affecting her hearing. It was a coyote or feral cats fighting, probably. She took a few deep breaths, forcing them to come evenly, and made sure she was centered in the circle. She twisted left, and right, checking that no part of her breached the protection. When she was sure, she cradled her injured hand and waited. It wasn't comfortable. The plywood was old and shredding in places. Splinters dug into her knees, and like her hand, they hurt. 
She tried to ignore it like she was ignoring the stink of blood and stomach acid. She focused her breathing, quieting it down so she could listen. Through the doorway she was facing, open and dilapidated as the rest of the barn, she could see the east cornfield. Wide as a sea, and taller than she was, the stalks swayed, stuck in the wind that seemed to have come from nowhere. Other than the wind, the night was quiet and dark. The nearest big city was a hundred miles from Daddy's farm. Light pollution didn't bleed out that far. If it weren't for the cloud cover, Carrie would have been able to see billions of stars. Usually, light from them and the moon made the corn shine, turning the stalks silvery. But that night, light from above only broke through occasionally, and she had to strain her eyes to scan the front line of crops. Her eyes moved slowly, seeking a wider, deeper patch of blackness that marked the head of a beaten path. When she found it, she locked onto it, squinting to sharpen her focus. That's where it would come from. If anything came, if she hadn't botched the ritual, if she hadn't killed livestock for nothing, she prayed she hadn't, but didn't know to who. Her parents had never been church people, and the last time she'd gone was Easter five years ago. She didn't think she was talking to God, maybe the land, or what it was that roiled under the rose. After a few minutes, her head started to ache behind the eyes. Heaving a sigh, she closed and rubbed them, letting her shoulders slump. Nothing was happening. She'd done the ritual and shed her blood just like the book said. Why hadn't it worked? Mama told her. Maybe Mama lied. No. It wasn't Mama. It was Carrie. Had to be. She'd drawn, said, or copied something wrong. She'd have to start over. Remake the circle and open her wound again, which would take time. A lot of time. Time she didn't have. Carrie's throat clamped tight. She had to swallow to loosen it up. It hurt. She bit her lip, refusing to cry. It wouldn't help. It never did. All it did was make her feel helpless, which she wasn't. She wasn't. She could do this. She... Movement at the edge of her vision stopped her short. She'd bent to blow out the candles and close the book, trying to remember where she'd left the paint and spare piece of plyboard, when it snagged her attention. She looked up, squinting again, expecting to see a coyote or mangy old cat. It wasn't a coyote or cat. It wasn't even by the cornfield. It was in the yard, loping oddly. No, it was crawling. It took Carrie's mind a while to register, but when it did, her stomach dropped. Whatever it was, it wasn't an animal she was used to. It was large, low to the ground, and dragging itself along like an injured man. The top half of its body rose and slumped as it clawed along, the back half unresponsive. Its motions were stunted, but it moved unnaturally fast, tearing up chunks of earth with its groping hands as it jerked nearer. At one point, no more than five feet from the door, it stopped and raised its head to peer inside. She locked eyes with... She didn't know what, but it made her bowels scream. It wasn't an animal, but it wasn't quite a man either. It had the vague shape of one, a torso topped with shoulders, a head and long arms. It was ruined, though. It looked half-melted and globby, as if a child had smashed it together with handfuls of damp clay. The face, illuminated by a dagger of moonlight, was collapsing. 
Its skull looked crushed. There were empty dips where eyes should have been, and a slack, open mouth with nothing inside. No teeth or tongue. Just a punched-out maw. It jumped the threshold, and Carrie whimpered, stomach churning at the sight and sound of its misshapen body dragging the floor. It pulled closer. Empty holes watching her, leaking greasy black mud from the mouth and the ragged end of its body, shredded below the hips. Its audible breathing made little clouds like hers did in winter. And the stink. Odd, the stink was overwhelming. The chunky, curdled smell of milk left in the sun and bacterial mud filled the barn. Carrie swayed, dizzy from it, and the frantic rush of her blood. Her legs were numb. She couldn't have run from the circle if she wanted to. Are you? She swallowed the urge to gag. The thing stopped a few inches back from the circle, pressed up on its palms, and cocked its head. Some of the flies swarming the meat pile buzzed in interest and landed on it. Are you... Duna? The thing growled, expelling a puff of rancid breath, and looked away from her to examine the meat. It brought its face close to the heap, as if to smell it, and came away with blood and plasma streaked across its cheeks. It is... The thing spoke. Though she couldn't see how, its mouth didn't move, but she still heard it. Its voice was shredded, like the thing had spent decades screaming. You grant wishes. It can. Then hear me. Grant mine. She straightened her back, trying to look commanding. Small as she was, she had the height advantage. The thing, stretched on its belly, wouldn't be able to stand. It looked less like it lost its legs, and more like it had never had them. Like whoever had smashed its body together had gotten bored and walked away before finishing. Duna was as wet and shapeable as throwing clay. The same black mud that drooled out of its mouth left a streaky trail behind it. A pool was collecting under its hips, spreading to join the slow leak of gore from the pile of meat. Duna pressed up with one arm, and with the other, reached for the stinking morsels, and started to pick through them. It is listening. It selected a plump rooster head. It stuffed the offering into its maw and swallowed it whole. Feathers, beak, and bone went down without a crunch. When it was done, Duna gave a groan that made Carrie queasy. I want my daddy dead. It was the first time she'd said it aloud. She'd never even written it in her diary. But she'd thought about it. What started as a fantasy had developed into a dire need. The creature plucked two more heads from the pile. Then a girl should kill him. It popped both into its mouth and swallowed like they were nothing. The answer was so unexpected that it took a moment to register. When it did, Carrie sputtered. What? Duna does not deal in petty death. It had shoved four more heads down its throat and was selecting a fifth before she spoke again. But you grant wishes! It can. Duna gave up gorging long enough to wag a finger. It ticked back and forth, greased from within like the mud near an oil rig. The hand and whole ugly body looked flammable. It is not a girl's slave. It can refuse, and a girl can kill her father for herself. Tired of rooster, the creature dug a finger behind one of the ram's eyeballs. 
It popped free and rolled like a gumball into Duna's palm. No. No, I can't. Some of her panic faded, overridden by the shock of being told no. That possibility wasn't in the book. The ritual, she thought, was a binding contract. A summoned demon did as it was told, collected payment, then left. Why not? Duna popped the other eyeball free, tossing both into its mouth, then went back for the rooster heads. It gobbled up three huge handfuls, smearing jellified gore on its chin. Is a girl too weak? Is she afraid? A spark of anger singed her. I'm not afraid. Liar. A girl reeks of fear. Duna tilted its battered head curiously and picked at the ram's cheek. It tore shreds of meat free while it watched her. Does her father hurt The question lacked empathy. Clinical and flat. It reminded her of the few times she'd gone to the doctor as a girl. He'd read her weight, height, and temperature off a paper in that same tone. And it made her feel smaller than anything. No. This time it was true. Her daddy had never laid a hand on her. He barely even spoke to her. He looked, though. And as she grew, the looks got longer. She could feel his eyes on her, greasing over everything he wanted. She couldn't remember when it started. Maybe he'd always done it. Maybe Mama had noticed before she died, suspected that something was coming she wouldn't be around to stop. Maybe that's why she told Carrie about the book. There hadn't been anyone else after Mama died. Daddy never remarried. It was just the two of them in the house. Carrie stayed gone as much as she could during the day. When school was in, that was easier. But summers were sinkholes. There was so much work to do, and Daddy needed her. He told her that sometimes, emphasizing the word in a way that made her want to peel off her skin. He'd never taken anything, though. Not from her. Somehow she was untouchable, but he'd taken it from others, she knew. Girls go missing, everywhere and all the time, and nothing ever comes out of the investigation. That was especially true in the nowhere pits of Iowa. Girls disappeared and got called troublemakers, hookers, runaways, everything but taken, and that was the end of it. No one but their families kept an eye on missing persons and lurid body-found reports from other towns. No one, except for Carrie. She collected papers and scoured online forums like the girls who'd gone missing were her sisters. Too many looked like her. Same skin tone, hair, eye color, height, and build. It was like finding an old, blurry photograph. If she squinted, she and the girls were indistinguishable. She heard it, sometimes. Not always, when it happened. Even if she hadn't stalked the news, she still would have known. He never brought them into the house. That would have been dangerous. They had a phone. He kept them in his shed for hours or days instead. He wandered in and out of it like he was stepping away from a project, face stone smooth and so serene. On those days, he talked more to Carrie than he usually ever did. It was like a weight had been lifted, or he'd finally worked a deep knot out of a muscle. They screamed. Even when he left them, The sound made Carrie sick and so afraid that sometimes she wouldn't leave the house until it was over. She'd curl up in bed, lock her door and jam the handle, 
and wait for the screams to go quiet, for it to end. Someone a girl loves. Duna sounded fractionally more interested than before. She made a desperate, pathetic sound. <laughs> Loved them. She didn't know them. Hadn't ever even tried to help them. The creature was right. She was afraid. Just someone. But it will be me. I feel it coming. I'm who he really wants, and he's getting bored with knockoffs. He won't settle for one again. I'm out of time. It had been over a year since Daddy had taken a girl. Usually, he didn't wait even half that long. But the last hadn't gone so well. He'd only had her for an hour when, somehow, was he distracted? She broke loose. Carrie heard the commotion through her bedroom window, a crash and scream like she'd never heard it before. She slinked out of bed to investigate and reached the window in time to see the shed door swinging on its hinges and a girl running into the cornfield. She didn't get away. Daddy knew that field. He ran in after her, loading buckshot into his gun. The stalks closed behind him, swallowing him and the girl whole. Carrie heard shots, and a few minutes later watched Daddy drag the girl's body out by the ankles. He'd been worse since then. Stiffer than usual. More volatile. He broke things, shouted and cussed and drank heavily. He never sat still for long, and his hands were always busy, fiddling with a piece of wire or knife. His attention had gotten more heated and predatory. Carrie felt like a piece of meat waiting to be carved. His eyes moved over her the way some people's eyes moved over fattened livestock. Every night when the hall outside her door creaked, she expected to die. The creature made a considerate sound, then ducked its head and slurped at the offering. Heads and slimy viscera disappeared into its maw. When it pulled away, a circle of floor looked like it had been mopped clean. How would a girl want her father to die? Carrie didn't have to think about it. Slowly, I want it to hurt. I want them to do it. Raising a shaking hand, she pointed to the cornfield. That's where Daddy buried girls. She was sure. It was a huge swath of land that bled into five other farms. A thousand corpse dogs couldn't find them. They were gone. And what else? Duna slurped at the remainders of its meal, vacuuming up wet meat like its belly was a void. Does a girl know what she's trading? Carrie nodded soberly. Ten years off my life. What did that really mean? She wondered. How long was she destined to live in the first place? Would Duna tell her? Probably not. Even if it knew, would it care? It was a demon. Those kinds of details were secondary. The creature growled in affirmation and in a nerve-pinching voice asked, Is this death worth the trade? It would be, she thought, even if that was all she wanted. The farm. I want to keep it. The bank will try to seize it when he's dead. Daddy, he's bad in debt. He almost ruined us. But I can save it. I can turn it around. I know I can. I just need time. Foreclosure had been a looming threat for most of her life. Daddy barely kept ahead of the bills, but the last few years it had gotten worse. His obsession with the girls, her doomed doubles, distracted him. He forgot to pay farmhands, let crops wither and livestock die. The only thing that still made money was the corn. The homestead was on the brink of repossession, but she was determined. It was hers by birthright, and she would save it. 
Carrie didn't want to leave. She didn't want to work in a diner, superstore, or on someone else's farm. She wanted to stay right there and work the land until she died, however near or far away that day was. Duna considered the request, finishing the meat she'd left for it. When all the rooster heads were gone and the ram's skull was picked half clean, cheekbones peeking out through ragged hangs of flesh, it said, A home and a death for a decade. A girl of these. I do. It growled, deep and sated. Then it shall be. The words came out as a hiss, melting into a string of others in a language Carrie didn't understand. They made her itch under the skin, and she imagined them as parasites burrowing to mark her from within. Around them, the barn creaked, caught in another sudden wind she hadn't heard kicking up. It didn't blow in over the fields. It swept from below, like a burst of steam causing the old building to shudder and list. The noise drowned out Duna's hissing, made a howl so loud she was sure Daddy would wake. The roof bowed, dropping slats the length of her leg. One clattered into her circle and instinct kicked in. Carrie ducked. Like she did during school tornado drills, she curled up small and covered her head. She weaved her shaking hands together and started praying again, dreading the moment the thing she'd summoned brought the barn down. It would bury and crush her. She would die and Daddy wouldn't. The creature had tricked her, but at least Daddy wouldn't get to do it. As suddenly as it started, the wind stopped. The walls swayed, caught up in their weight and momentum, but eventually settled. The wood creaked painfully, threatening to fall in the next slightest breeze. One didn't come. The air had gone dead again. Duna's sibilant chanting faded with the wind. Carrie couldn't hear anything but her own ragged breathing and a rustle in the cornfield. Cautiously, she peeked out from the shelter of her arms. Duna was gone. She was alone. The only signs that the creature had been there were twin smears of the black mud that had leaked from its hips. The trails Duna made coming and going looked like blood where slants of moonlight, allowed in by new breaks in the roof, landed on them. Duna? It didn't answer. Another rustle came from the cornfield. But it could have been caused by anything from a loose dog to a nightbird. Had she really... Had Duna... Something shrieked. The high, warbling sound came from way out in the field. It sounded miles away. The second was closer. And then the third, fifth, seventh were near enough to make her ears ring. Carrie's blood pooled in her feet. She recognized them. More came, their different pitches bouncing off one another, unable to blend, layering terribly. The corn rustled, stalks shaking and bending, some even falling, crushed by the bodies moving through them. Carrie's breath locked up in her chest. Her joints felt rusted. She couldn't stand or leave the circle, and wasn't sure she wanted to. New screams busted up from the earth. More than two dozen. Broken by labored grunts and the fleshy sounds of bodies falling to the ground and into each other. Hobbled by mutilation and stiff from the cycle of seasons, the dead things, the girls, crept in. Some had been buried for over a decade. They'd move the slowest. There wouldn't be much left of them but broken bones and hate. There were fresher kills, though. The most recent, only dead a year. She'd be the fastest. She already was. She'd almost gotten away. 
vision tunneling and feeling faint, Carrie leaned forward and rested her weight on both her hands. The sliced ones stung. She ignored the throb of pain, refusing to let her head hang. She stared out at the cornfield. Daddy had guests. And this time, she wouldn't look away. survived our terrifying tales. Join us again next week, if you dare. The No Sleep Podcast Hour is presented by WNSP in conjunction with Creative Reason Media. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cordette. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast Hour, we thank you for tuning in and for being a supportive Season Pass member. This program is copyright 2022 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.